0: From the Circular Economy Studio, you're listening to the Don't Call It Sustainable podcast. Join us as we speak with organizations who use the circular economy as a tool to stimulate economic value while also regenerating natural ecosystems. It truly is the best of both worlds. Now here's your host, the co-author of The Circular Economy for Dummies, Kyle J. Ritchie. How's it going, my friends? Welcome. This is Kyle Ritchie, the author of Circular Economy for Dummies. And on this show, we are going to speak with pros from around the world to figure out exactly how business industries like architecture, fashion, technology can become an asset to the natural world with the use of the circular economy. Specifically, the three principles involved, which are design out waste, circulate products, and regenerate natural systems. Thank you for joining in. Let's get started. If you are struggling to figure out how you can begin to incorporate deconstruction services into your business, then you need to reach out to my friend Dave Benink with the Building Deconstruction Institute. He and his team have not only been disassembling buildings around the world for the past 20 plus years, but they can also teach you and your team how to properly disassemble buildings as a source of revenue. If you need help and guidance, check out their website at www.reuseconsulting.com. All right. So... Episode number two is finally here, and I'm still really excited uh, with the attention that we got from our first episode. I honestly thought that we would really only be seeing viewers from the United States and maybe, maybe the UK, which we did, but we also received, uh, surprisingly enough, a ton of views from Canada, as well as Australia, Iceland, and Spain. So that was really unexpected. And we're uh, here at the Circular Economy Studio, even more motivated now to give the show everything that we've got. And I'm going to do my best to find some guests for the rest of the season that come from all of those other great locations who listened into the show. So um, our next guest, the amazing Rhaenyra O'Donnell, uh, she is the education lead for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And she's been working with her team in the UK for close to three years now. Um, Interestingly enough, before joining the foundation, though, uh, she spent almost 20 years working in local government and really mastering her skills of getting things done at the local level, which is fantastic and just goes to show why she's been such a value at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So she really is doing amazing things within the circular economy industry. Uh, She's working with institutions around the world with her colleagues at the El MacArthur Foundation, and if you don't know about them, stay tuned, because you're going to want to know about them, and I'm sure Rhaenyra will be able to do a hell of a better job describing their efforts than I can. So, with that, let's go ahead and bring her in. I'm pleased to introduce my good friend from the other side of the pond, Rhaenyra O'Donnell.
1: Thank you very much, Kyle. I am equally excited, as this is my first ever podcast, so... Oh, it is. I know. A lot of firsts. Let's not mess this up, shall
0: we? So I've met a list of people a mile long who work with the circular economy every single day and have done a fantastic job of showing the value of this amazing framework. You obviously being a perfect example of that. And so giving these examples an opportunity to rise to the top and get some of the attention that they deserve is really what my involvement has looked like. With writing the Dummies book in 2021 and starting this show this year in 2022, you know, I want to help people understand first and foremost what the circular economy is and then help connect them with a range of tools and information that will encourage or empower individuals and and businesses to pick up on it. And I would say in a nutshell, that's really what the Alan MacArthur Foundation offers. But, you know, it'd be great to hear more from you on, on the foundation.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we were set up with a single mission, which was to accelerate the transition to a circular economy. And I guess we have been, well, we think we've been pretty successful in gaining huge momentum over the last 10 years. But yeah, we're really, really about how do we make this understandable, accessible and applicable. Right. So, yeah, I would agree with that.
0: And so you and I actually first made contact. It would have been at the AESHE conference.
1: Oh, Kyle, that was, that was like 2019, like the whole, (laughs) there's been a whole lifetime between now and then. It was a long flight. It was, oh, I don't know, nine, 10, 11 hours, something like that. I flew into Seattle and then I had to fly north. And uh, to be fair, I mean, I've been to the, the States a number of times, but that was the furthest west and north I'd ever been.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah that was really where we got connected for the first time was in Spokane Washington and I've been fortunate enough to work with you a little bit just speaking on different uh, webinars especially the one that I hosted last year so I'm a big fan of not only what the foundation does but what you do specifically mm-hmm. um, you are very well versed in the circular economy so I'm grateful that we've we've been able to work closely over the past few years so help us understand exactly how you found yourself working at the L. MacArthur Foundation? I mean, starting from, from college, what was your path?
1: So, oh goodness, that really is a lifetime ago. So I I went to school and university. Um, college is such a US term. Uh, I, went to, <laughs> I went to school and university in South Africa, which is where I, I grew up. And um, I actually intended to be a doctor. Probably haven't told you that before, Kyle. No. I, yeah, I applied for medicine and, um, I finished school in a very transitional year for South Africa, and I unfortunately um, didn't fall into the the right skin colour, actually, to get into medicine. And so I got a rejection letter and then was like, oh, pants, now what do I do? And so I decided to do the first year of what I considered to be subjects that would then get me into medicine for second year. And that all went horribly wrong because I did maths, I did physics, I did chemistry and zoology and failed pretty much everything except. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I am really not hugely intellectual. I had a great time at university. But what it did do is it led me to pick a second major in environmental and geographical science in my second year. And so my degree is really very life science based. So I have a really good understanding of natural systems, which in terms of the circular economy is hugely helpful. Right. But I'm not gonna lie to you, I finished university and I didn't work <laughs> in my science degree for the better part of the next 18, 18 years. And I had a very chequered career through uh, local government in the UK. Um, and uh, I came over to the UK after I finished university because I thought oh, I'll I'll make loads of money and I'll take it back to South Africa and I'll do my honours in environmental and geographical science. And right. uh, that, that never happened. I've not actually left England yet. Um, but about two and a half years ago, I got to a stage where I needed to do something different. And I actually had friends who work at the Alan McCarth Foundation. I have found myself living on the Isle of Wight, which is where it is headquartered. And uh, over a very enjoyable few bottles of wine, got talking. <laughs> about, well, I mean, you did ask. Got talking about um, the circular economy and how. I found it really fascinating and at the time I was actually working on a, a local project here on the island and thinking through how there's no university here where I live but we all know that universities bring with them like amazing uh, economic regeneration and they bring young people and lifebloods and research into an area. And we've got lots of what we call in the UK um, tertiary education so kind of Uh, uh, vocational training, people can do degree apprenticeships. And I was working on a project at the time to think about how we could bring these institutions together to make students feel like they were more part of a a coordinated campus and university. And at the time, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation was in need of somebody heading up their higher education program. And um, anyway, I, I applied for the role and here I am. So it was a big career change for me. And I've had to learn so much about the circular economy, but also about how higher education works, because I'd gone to university in South Africa, which works differently to the UK, which works differently to the US, which works differently to lots of countries around the world. So that's kind of my potted journey from um, starry-eyed wanting to be a doctor when I was 18 (laughs) to that would have been a disastrous idea, and actually really finding something that I'm particularly passionate about.
0: I'm surprised that I've never spoken to you about that before until now. I had no idea that you were originally going to be a doctor. So yeah, yeah you, you really touched on an, on a key point, I think, of giving, giving university students the opportunity to sort of take their ambition that really does start to grow quickly once you're a student in college. I know that I jumped onto a lot of different organizations when I started, but there's always that gap between interest and application. And it really seems like the El MacArthur Foundation is able to sort of uh, help elevate the ideas that a lot of students are nowadays, especially really putting effort behind. So uh, it's, it's great that you're able to find yourself in a position where you can sort of help facilitate these activities that might not get the support that they would otherwise.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been really fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's safe to say when I came into this role two and a half years ago, we were really focused on kind of teaching and research in the circular economy. But what we've really seen over the last two and a half years is how students really would like to do more in the space and seeing universities starting to connect their teaching with how they're managing their campuses and providing opportunities for students to actually apply their theoretical knowledge from the classroom on their campus has been really exciting to see. And we see that all the time, which is great.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, there are I'm sure many more universities in the UK participating and working with the L MacArthur Foundation than here in the States. But I really do think once we are able to sort of grow the interest in the circular economy here that we're gonna see that universities will really start to partner with organizations like yourself because it's not only a really great way for them to begin recruiting students by saying, hey, we have these opportunities available. We partner with the leading uh, groups on this sort of effort but it's also a really good financial decision for them.
1: Yeah, I mean there's two things really for, for universities that we that we hear from them. So one is that obviously moving to managing their own organizations in a more a more circular manner is going to give them returns uh, in terms of financial returns at the bottom line. But actually, one of the biggest draw cards is that, you know, young people are really now looking at the credentials in the well, sustainability or circular credentials of the institutions where they want to study. And, you know, there's lots of research that's shown that sort of 60, 70 percent of students are now choosing their academic institution based on its work in sustainability or circular economy. So I think, you know, to not thinking about this puts you in a very uncompetitive place actually.
0: Yeah and I work with a lot of universities just through their master planning processes as well as individual building construction and there's always that element that the student being a key stakeholder because they're they're eventually going to be deciding where they're going to go so if you can offer uh, programs to help support circular economy or or sustainability I mean that's really going to attract a lot of students I feel like and you've been involved in working with quite a few universities um But what always amazes me about Ellen MacArthur Foundation is you don't just work with universities, you have a wide range of folks at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation who are working on food or cities or fashion. Um, So day to day, what exactly does your role look like while working at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation?
1: Well, I think you know working at the foundation we well let's go back to what the foundation is here for shall we so it was it's been around for about 11 years now set up by uh dame ellen MacArthur, as i said to accelerate the transition to the circular economy um you know and and i think one of the things that sets us apart from a number of different organizations that work in the sustainability space is that we've always been really clear that the circular economy is not only about the right outcomes for operating within planetary boundaries, but that it really is an economic proposition too. And when it was set up, it was really clear that if you know if this is going to work for an economy, the players that need to be involved need to be those that are the biggest operators in the economy. So business and industry became really important for us work with and as a foundation we've set out to really engage with some of the world's largest corporations businesses industries and you just need to go to our website and have a look at kind of some of the 2000 partners that we have that we work with to show that you know there is huge appetite in the business community for moving towards circular products circular business models but then equally businesses can only make decisions within Legislative or policy frameworks. And so we also work really closely with governments and cities from around the world and institutions such as the World Economic Forum, etc, because we know that we we need to be shifting kind of policies, we need to shift uh, strategies at, at uh, national, regional and local levels to be able to enable the right conditions for the circular economy to be applied. So business and cities and governments have always been really important. And then I guess my, my area of work comes in where we say, well, hang on a moment. We can't do any of this if people don't even know what the circular economy is. And so we've done, you know, a lot of work over the last 10 years to not only work with the current workforce and we provide all sorts of access routes into professional development for the for the businesses in our network, but also then working with universities and increasingly with the kind of under 18s as well. So how do we start to instill a knowledge of the circular economy and to start to shift the mindsets of young people who are coming up and who will be that workforce of the future. So actually, they're going into their jobs with this completely different approach to how the economy can work and and are able to execute things in a far easier manner. And it's far more kind of intuitive for them. So across the organization, we have these sort of three areas that we we work with. And then you're right, we, we needed to take a systemic approach. So it's no good to just be trying to clean up the, the problems at the, end of, at the end of the pipe. We need to really look at, at like whole systems. And so we've taken a number of material flows and we work in food, plastics, fashion, a little bit in the built environment in looking at how we can fundamentally transform the, the systems around those different material flows. And you know, I think if you've been watching the news, Kyle, you would have seen that the, um, the UN Global Plastics Treaty um, idea was endorsed. Uh, yeah, I just saw the, that. Yeah, and I mean that has been largely based on the plastics pact that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has established with local leaders. There's 12 of them now around the world, and our work in plastics has been has been hugely successful in terms of changing the way the system is operating. So I think you know we. Well, we'd like to think we've had great success, um certainly in plastics. And if you look at our genes redesign program and thinking through how you can redesign genes to be circular, we've had lots of success. and you know next, on our list is how do we introduce a circular design for food. So yeah, so we work with global players. We tackle a number of different material flows. And I suppose a day in my life is looking at how can research support all of this? How can we get, universities to do what one big university in London is doing and that's building circular economy into a compulsory undergraduate first year program so like every single student that goes through that university will know what the circular economy is how do I work with organizations like Lego and get to get them to think about building circular economy into their massive education platforms um you know so so Life in my world is quite exciting. I get to work. And pretty with
0: diverse, life. it sounds like.
1: It's so diverse, and I think because education touches so many different facets of of life, right? Um, it crops up everywhere, and so I feel really lucky that I get to talk to some incredible people from all over the world, and you know, talk about how are we going to make the world a much better place.
0: Right. Yeah, and you touched on a really great point that comes up a lot in my work: is this idea of a living laboratory and incorporating research into operations of a campus. Yeah. Uh, we're finding more and more, um, as I'm working with universities here in the US, that we are utilizing energy, not not just energy dashboards, but um, really data that is being pulled from certain education realms. And that is actually then sort of influencing how buildings are operating. So if we can have a an entire dashboard at the entry of a building, and at key points, sort of showing what what data is being pulled from that building, that really does influence how how folks um, act and what decisions they make. So I can only imagine on a a larger scale utilizing sort of research as a a motivation for um, sort of student action. I mean, there has to be so much success around that.
1: There is. uh, Although, I mean, I, it's interesting because you you and I sit here and we can absolutely see this the scale the scalability of that and how you know every university really should be using its students and its research capacity to be able to help their own operations and whilst there is there is quite a lot out there there's not nearly as much as I think there is the potential to have so is that that is an area where I think you know, universities are doing so much in teaching circular economy and researching circular economy, but they, they also don't always think about how can that research be done on our own campus to help right. us turn our campus into being more secular. So I think that's an area where I would love to see a huge amount more work being done in that space.
0: There's the opportunity that is on campus itself, but sort of working with entire life cycles you can't just look at what's on the university to what they can manage but how do you then while working with universities and different institutions are you taking part in sort of identifying which stakeholders that they're working with outside of the university or Lego for instance are you working with their outside partners as well?
1: So sometimes we do but we provide more than us doing the work directly with them we actually just provide um a facilitation network connecting platforms so quite a lot of what we do is in our in our formal network is that we get businesses and universities in the same room together and say right business a has this problem university b has these researchers how can we put you together to help solve some of those challenges and actually there's a piece of work that we finished uh Gosh, it must have been 2020 now on creating a circular procurement framework, and that was a collaboration between Exeter University uh, and Philips, for example, as you know, as a company. And, and we then picked up the learnings from that and turned it into a toolkit. So we do quite a lot to provide that space in which academic institutions and businesses can come together and can actually identify ways that they can work together. Uh, we had a great example where um, it's not just businesses actually the uh, in london for example the local the the the, uh, what do you call it the gla um, the greater london authority which is the Mm -hmm. mayor's authority and their circular economy arm called re-london utilized uh, one of the masters researchers at university college london to map food flows across food waste flows across london and that's really helped drive some data and drive um, changes and, and recommendations that uh, ReLondon have been able to work with. So we we try and create this environment where, um, you know, businesses and cities and governments have access to universities already working in this space and vice versa. And, you know, by the same token, university researchers may be looking at a specific thing in the circular economy and they will then go out to companies within our network and say, we have this theory. <laughs> Anybody willing to try it with us? Um, and we've had a lot, you know, success in those, in what we call collaborative projects in that space as well.
0: So for you, since, exp- you know, you have so much experience helping higher education facilities uh, eliminate waste on campus, I'd love to get an idea or some insight from you on sort of what you consider to be the easiest steps, the low-hanging fruit, the no-brainers <laughs> for institutions to to not only use their resources more efficiently, but as you've pointed out very recently, not just efficiently, but effectively. Yeah. Um, so before we do that, you you really brought this idea up that I'd like to talk about a little bit. You said sometimes being efficient isn't the only goal, and you referenced Brangard's cherry tree as an example. Could you I, sort of it, outline what the difference between resource efficiency and resource effectiveness is?
1: I can. I mean, and I think nature is always a great example for this. So, so Brangard says about a cherry tree, you know, a cherry tree Goes into into blossom. If it was going to be efficient, it would it would just produce enough blossoms for it to kind of produce the seeds to reproduce itself within whatever land was available. Right. But actually, what it does, it is it it is effective rather than efficient because it produces thousands of blossoms right some of them will go on to become new cherry trees some of them will go on to become cherries but actually most of them will probably fall on the ground and they will they will obviously they will rot and become fertilizer for the ground around the tree helping to keep the system in which that tree lives Um, thriving and nutrient-rich. So so for me, it's a really great way of understanding it. You know, that that tree is incredibly effective at keeping itself going. If it only produced enough blossoms to be efficient at being a cherry tree, it would fail because it ultimately would die because the ground around it, the system in which it lives, would not continue to be fed with loads of nutrients. And I always think that's a really nice example. So you can you can drive efficiencies and you can make your business as efficient as possible, and and that can be circular or not. But actually, sometimes it's not effective. And sometimes, being effective and delivering, say, more than you need to, but because it gives you a better outcome and creates a better space within the system, it is better to be effective than it is to be efficient.
0: That's a that's a great breakdown, and, and there's a, a, a thousand different things I could respond with, but one of the things is really um, one of the the key principles of permaculture, as you know, is capture resources while they're abundant. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like that's what the cherry tree is doing. It has the capacity to produce as much as it does mm-hmm. because it's it's absorbing all of that solar radiation that it possibly can and so like you said if it was just efficient it would only absorb the radiation that it needs to produce what it needs but it's not it's able to produce more than it needs and therefore produce eventual fertilizer for itself so it's sort of a, a, a tie into the idea of resiliency as well so if there is a reason it can't necessarily produce as much as it, it typically would on an annual year it already has sort of that buildup buffer that it can it can now rely on so I think effectiveness and efficiency, that is definitely going to be a, uh, a message that I try and extend into my work as well. But that is a great, a great summary. And, you know, pinpointing think, the differences between those, I think, is really key. So thank no, you for that.
1: No, no problem. I think I'd, I'd add a little bit to that, Kyle, which is the word regenerative, uh, the word restorative you you're putting more in than you're taking out and i right. think for me that's the big thing i think a lot of the time when we talk about being sustainable or being efficient we're talking about doing less bad right? right okay so the circular economy is so clear that we also have to be regenerative we have to do better and and i think one of the things that we find uh, particularly with young people actually With things like eco-anxiety going on is the positive message of the circular economy, which is really about saying that there is there is a way that you can do things that make something better rather than just doing less bad. We find that that positive spin really resonates with people, particularly young people who need to hear positive messages about the environment and that it's not all doom and gloom
0: you're you're spot on which is which is really the reason the podcast is called don't call it sustainable because <laughs> because the circular economy isn't aiming to just be sustainable it's not it's not looking to break even it has this idea that you can break even but that that's not the ultimate goal we can go beyond sustainable we can look towards regenerative solutions that not only meet our needs of today but actually yeah. make it easier for future generations to meet their own needs that's really what regenerative is all about it's it's sort of making up for the mistakes of the past as well to a certain extent. So that distinction again between sustainable and regenerative that's so critical when I'm trying to explain to folks what what the circular economy is all about. And it makes me shudder a bit when I see folks calling the circular economy just sustainable. It's not. So that's again going back to the terminology involved. Um I I hate to think that in the future the circular economy is just becoming a buzzword like sustainable is and i'm already seeing hints of it where where companies are are calling a process circular they produce a, a circular product but what they essentially are saying most of the time is that the product that they are producing was made from 100 recycled content but that doesn't necessarily address what is going to happen to that product later in its life are you, yeah. are you offering a buyback program Um, Do you have partners that will take this product once it stops working and and send it to a new use? Or is there opportunities to repair it, to reuse it, to share it? There's so much that is kind of at stake here when it comes to terminology and making sure that we're speaking about this the right way, just to make sure that the, the fate of circular economy isn't the same as what sustainability is today, where it can pretty much be stretched and used for whatever you want.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we... We struggle with that. I think there is, there's a, you know, you, you can you can talk to people about the secular economy as a framework for meeting whatever vocabulary needs they are wanting to. So I'll give you an example for that. So a lot of universities, and I think you mentioned it, really talking about net zero, uh, carbon neutrality, they're talking about being carbon positive. And, you know, we did some work uh, and released a report called uh, completing the picture back in 2019, which shows that without moving to a circular economy and without thinking about the way that we produce and use goods, you're only gonna get 55% of the way there in terms of carbon neutrality if you're just looking at kind of energy. So there is definitely something about making, using the language that whoever your audience is using and reinforcing that, you know, moving towards a circular economy is definitely part of the way of getting there. Right. So, so I think we, you know, we certainly uh, have talked quite a bit around how the circular economy is a is a tool, a framework, an approach for meeting net zero. You know, if you move to a circular economy by default, your thing or your approach will be sustainable.
0: Right. So there's
1: definitely something in there about saying, absolutely, I agree with you. Like the language is tricky, but I think we've we also recognize that sometimes you need to meet people at where they are in their language journey, in their vocab journey, um, and showcasing how the circular economy is a way of achieving that is it can be equally as powerful.
0: That's a very good point. And I can't tell you how many times I've avoided using the word circular or sustainable and instead just talking about outcomes. That makes it a lot easier for institutions I work with to uh, not immediately put up sort of that, uh, oh. that, that shield across their face of not really wanting to hear about sustainability anymore. Um, Outcomes is a great way, and so you make a really good point of of referencing the circular economy as sort of that framework that is beneficial for universities to look at to start to address food waste on campus or or energy or buildings. And what what was the percentage you said? Fifty five percent is just tied to operational.
1: Well, forty five percent of kind of greenhouse gas emissions is really tied to the way that we make and use products. So you're only going to get halfway there if you're just tackling kind of energy stuff. So really, we need to totally rethink the way that we make and use products, which is really what we're talking about in the circular economy. So, yeah, it's got a huge part to play in meeting that 1.5 degree target, you know.
0: Right. That's a really key figure to talk about here for a second, because whenever I'm working with a university, they usually have a, a climate action plan of some sort that covers this idea that we need to get to carbon neutrality. what they're really talking about is the carbon tied to energy and operations. They're not talking about embodied carbon because when you're looking at a building, the ratio of of carbon involved for the building versus the energy use over its lifetime, they're not even close. There's so much more carbon tied to operations than there is the actual building. So it's interesting to hear that figure.
1: Yeah. No, it's quite, you know, and and I, I think people forget, about you know the impact on climate of the amount of food waste they forget about the impact on climate of the amount of textiles and fashion and you know universities have a role to play in all of this
0: so i'd like to take some time to really sort of come up with some practical solutions we can share with folks who are listening in you know, what, what can they do to make an impact? How can they use the circular economy framework to make a change? And so I thought it'd be really nice to have you provide us with some examples, preferably of, of projects that you're working on um, right now or have worked on in the past. Just starting out by discussing eliminating waste. What are some easy steps that universities and institutions can take to uh, really begin eliminating waste on campus? Not recycling, but eliminating waste before it even needs recycled.
1: So one of my favorite examples, and a number of institutions have started doing this, is there's technology out there that you attach to um, the food waste bins in canteens and in halls, and they measure exactly how much food waste is going into the bins. And what I love about this is that it collects loads of data. So it will tell you on a Tuesday, I don't know, like 25 kilograms of fries ended up in the bin with five kilograms of of cucumber and, you know, three kilograms of chicken or whatever it right. is. But actually, the people who are then running those canteens and halls can start to make some really fantastic decisions so that they can design out that food waste even coming into that bin in the first place. And, you know, Bristol University have done that in their halls. I know London School of Economics is are, are, are doing it as well. And there's technology like Winnow, which is one of our uh, emerging innovators or chef's eye technology. And I really like that. I, I you know, in Bristol University, they totally and utterly redesigned uh How the food was set out. They allowed students to take their own portions rather than portioning up themselves, and they found that they took less. They discovered that lots of students didn't eat salads, so they didn't put out (laughs) so much. But I don't know how I feel about that. No. But, But I guess the point is you know, until you can understand where your waste is coming from, you can't really make any decisions to change it. But what I what I so I love that one, and that there is tech out there that helps you really understand the data behind food waste. Um, You know, and then once you've got, you know, once you've you've made some menu changes or or you've redesigned how you're going to set the food out, you've looked at portion control, all of that kind of stuff, you will still have some waste and then it's thinking through right, how do I compost that? Where does that compost go? How do I get it back on campus? Can I use that? to start growing food on campus so that actually we are dialing down the number of food miles from food brought in from other places so we're you know we're taking the carbon out of that how can we bring our food in using electric vehicles or bicycles so there's all sorts of things around kind of food waste that i think is a really great place to start and it also i think in our work we've seen that students are really passionate about food um you know there's another university in london imperial college that has a um a packaging-free uh, food section in their student union so you can take in your own container and you can get, they buy in bulk, and you can buy your own rice and pasta and, you know, so, so sort of your dry goods. So you're you're eliminating the need for plastic waste. Right, and right. it's the same with water coolers and water bottles. So you can do away completely with um, bottled water and store water coolers and just say, you bring your own water bottle and you actually design out that the need for plastic water bottles and therefore the waste that they, they um, accumulate on campus, and then you don't have to deal with it. So for me, food is a really cool place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It does feel like one of, the, one of the quick wins, I think.
0: Yeah, and you made a good point by identifying that the very first step that these institutions are taking is to get the data tied to what their current use patterns are. Yeah, Because only when you get that information can you really start to identify opportunities to eliminate waste and really figure out how much waste is costing you. That's one of the key points that I, I try and focus on is waste does have a cost. So if you get rid of it ahead of time, you're essentially saving yourself the pain down the road. Those are great examples of eliminating waste before it even is created. And you even touched on sort of the next principle, which is circulating materials by addressing the idea of of composting your own food mm-hmm. waste. Um, Are there any any good examples that you could provide or any institutions you want to name that are really leading the charge on on circulating materials, whether that is through composting food or or other programs?
1: Well, actually, I thought I'd touch on another one for this, actually, because one another one of our kind of emerging innovators at the foundation is an organization called Reaply, based in the state. So based uh, just near Chicago. Um, And they are, again, a tech platform. But basically what they do is they help one part of university tell other parts of the university what they have that's excess. So it's a it's basically like, um, like a, you know, if you think of Facebook Marketplace, like you wanted to sell something, you've got a bookcase that you no longer need, you put it up on Facebook Marketplace, somebody says, I'll have that, and and you keep that, that product in use. So Reapley has been designed specifically to support resource sharing. So, for example, the geography department is refurbishing a, a classroom or a lecture theatre. They've got desks and chairs that they no longer need rather than sending those to landfill, which not only is bad for the environment, but also comes at a cost because institutions have to pay for their you know, to have their, um, right, their rubbish right. taken away. They can then put that up on the Reaply platform. It gets matched with, I don't know, the mathematics department is going, oh, Goodness, actually, we were in need of another 20 desks for X, Y and Z. And so they keep those products circulating. I know uh, in a number of places they've also set up like repair and refurbish centers where um, furniture can go and students can help by refurbishing it and repairing it. And then it goes back out through this platform. So I think there are some really interesting, um, you know, tech platforms that enable resource sharing um in a way that means that a people are saving money because they don't have to procure new stuff b the institution is saving money because it doesn't have to pay for stuff to go landfill. and of course the bonus in all of that is that we're keeping that embodied carbon out of the environment so i think that's a really great example um you know there are lots of universities. MIT is one of them that does big clothing swaps. So people can bring all the clothing that they don't want. They will set aside some space and they have like big clothing swaps. I know a lot of universities do end of term, like dorm clear out. So people right. can put all their stuff out and the next incoming students can, can buy it off them. And to me, again, those are you know those are easy things that, that it's really not that difficult to set up and it's a good place to start. And I think one of the things that we see is that this can be really overwhelming you know this 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 need to be sustainable or net zero or circular, circular whichever language you happen to be using can feel really overwhelming and Then you often don't know where to start. But actually, it's a journey. Not every organization is able to go from completely linear to completely circular overnight. And there is a journey and building confidence and engaging your students and using them to collect data and do your research for you. And starting with these small kind of quick wins will really help mobilize the whole organization.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad that you, you were able to provide so many examples because usually the first step that I see universities taking when they are wanting to look at material waste is they will just simply focus on the recycling initiatives. So they'll make sure that the bins are available, that the graphics are are updated to make it easy for people to recycle. But so many things you can do upstream to prevent the need to recycle in the first place and keep materials in use and maintain the embodied carbon and energy that is tied to those products. We've covered eliminate waste. We've yeah. touched on circulate materials. We have the last principle is regenerate natural systems which really ties into the first two to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um but what what examples do you have to share that really elevates this idea of regenerating natural systems?
1: so i mean i think what you know my favorite examples are some of the ones that again like a really easy thing to do thing to do how do you start to give space over on campus that's less about mown lawns and is more about increasing biodiversity is less about paved walkways and more about can we carve out a space for growing food I mean there's a there's some really great examples um uh, again Bristol University their veterinary science school um uses they they created one of their kind of peri-urban farmlands where there is um runoff from a dairy farm that is not great for the environment so they created what's called a An urban drainage system, which basically takes the drainage that comes off these farms and takes it through a series of reed beds, which filter out all the bad stuff and puts good stuff back into the environment. And not only does that help deal with some of the waste runoff that's going, that's coming out of the agricultural um, uh, farmlands, but it's also created habitat for nature. So you look at it now, and there's ducks and geese and frogs and goodness knows what else, and it's a really great place for people to be, and it offers an environment then where the veterinary science students can go and study these creatures. And so, you know, again, connecting that, like regenerating nature with another part of the university that is studying. And it's just, I, I, you know, those stories are, they're all out there. Um, right. And I think it's really about thinking through how are, you, how are you using your land and what are you using it for? But But also don't forget That regenerating nature is not just about what you plant and and how we you know how we make space for how we put things back in nature but it's also about leaving space for nature so for example if you are sharing resources desks petri dishes glasses stethoscope whatever whatever your resources are and you're sharing them rather than putting them in landfill And also, rather than creating the need for more virgin materials to come out of the ground to make those things, you know, then you're leaving space for nature. It might not be on your campus, but you're doing that little bit to leave space somewhere else for nature to thrive. So there's a combination there around, like you said, back to those first two. Where if we design our waste, there's less waste going into the environment so nature can thrive. If we circulate products and materials, there's less call on virgin materials so that leaves space for nature to thrive. And then regenerating natural systems is really about us saying there is a lot that we can do to help nature thrive by making sure that we plant the right things, we use our land appropriately um, and, and we help rebuild natural soils and, and help really put nutrients back into, into the ground.
0: I could not come up with a a better summary myself. So with that, I think we will end this episode, but this has been such a good opportunity to review the three principles of the circular economy, discuss the framework a little more and, and review some examples, but also address circular economy on a much larger perspective. So I very much look forward to seeing what you continue to do at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks, Carl. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: To listen to even more episodes of the Don't Call It Sustainable podcast, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Also, follow us on Instagram at Don't Call It Pod. To learn more about our work at the Circular Economy Studio, follow us on LinkedIn and visit our website at circulareconomy.studio. For sponsorship opportunities or questions, email us directly at infocirculareconomy.studio. At